I walked away from both those events so hyped, never fingerboarding with another person. Welcome to the Finger Space Podcast, a weekly show where we will dive deep into the history, stories, and controversies surrounding the fingerboarding community. Welcome to the Finger Space Podcast. I'm your host, Nostalgia FB, and we're excited to be chatting with Levine of USA FBL. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on your streaming platform of choice. Now, this episode is sponsored by USA FBL 2022 Fingerboard Tour, which will be coming to 12 cities and 11 states around the United States, with the largest collection of Black River Parks and much more. Levine, thank you for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's an honor. No, of course. It's an absolute pleasure having you on, man. So you and I have a little bit of history, which we can divulge here in a little bit, but... The first question that I like to ask every guest that comes onto the show is how did you hear about and get into fingerboarding? So fingerboarding for me started in 96. I'm 35, so I'm a little, little older than most. But uh, I started out on a Mountain Dew board. It was like a promotional board with a quarter pipe I got at the Dollar General with my mom's. And so X Games was just coming out. So like it was really, really huge at the time for skateboarding. And my parents actually didn't let me skateboard, which in hindsight, 2020, I guess that's kind of a good thing. Cause you know, I got all my teeth, no broken bones, all that cool stuff. And so I, I convinced them to get me a fingerboard. And so that pretty much is what got me started into fingerboarding. It's just trying to duplicate things on a skateboard. So 96, that was a while ago now. What was that journey like? I mean, have you been fingerboarding on and off or, you know, full time, all that kind of stuff since 1996? Because you've seen, I'm assuming, the, you know, downfall and the resurgence and the waves fingerboarding has gone through if you've been involved that long. Gotcha. So for me, it's definitely been an off and on journey. Even after I picked up my first fingerboard, I mean, there was no internet back in 96. So like, I was just kind of tinkering around with it. And literally like six months later, like I accidentally ollied. And so from there, like I was hooked. I was like, got it like half an inch off the table, like craziness. And then from there I learned to kind of kickflip and then I was hooked, it was done. And so for me, it's been, an off and on journey. And so I pretty much did it pretty consistently for like probably the next five or six years. And then about junior year of high school, like it just took a huge hiatus. So I took like a, a good nine year hiatus from fingerboarding and then COVID kind of got me back into the mix. Okay. All right. That's, you know, and I've said this before when we started this podcast, COVID was not good in many different ways, but it got a lot of people fingerboarding again because you were stuck inside and what else was there to do? Exactly, so I dusted off all those old tech deck ramps and just uh, got back into it and looked on the internet and see who else was doing it. And to my surprise, like, so like two and a half years ago, like I was still rocking a 25 millimeter tech deck. So like the first thing I did when I came back from like, you know, getting back into it from COVID was to went to Walmart and picked up a new deck and these things are huge like 32 millimeters super aggressive concave huge absolutely and then got on instagram and stuff and just was literally just blown away by the amount of just how big the industry and stuff was but like nobody really kind of organized it at all it was kind of like people doing their own things and then every now and then you'll see like an event or a meetup or something like that but that was about the full extent of it 
Of course, and you know, I think we kind of know the story here when you saw that uh, nationally it was a little unorganized, so you kind of stepped in and started forming the USAFBL. But before we get into that, Levine, what did you do before USAFBL? It seems like you're a very smart, intelligent, and uh, savvy businessman and marketer for sure. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So the last seven years of my life, I've got a MBA in accounting. So my background is accounting. And I had a shuttle service back home in Branson, Missouri, before I relocated out here to Indianapolis and through our huge storefront. So as a shuttle service, we're in Branson, Missouri. If you're not familiar with Branson, Missouri, it's kind of like Pigeon Forge. So it's a huge tourist destination. But, you know, with COVID and everything, it literally just kind of took a huge toll on that business. And I was put in a hard spot where basically I could try to stick it out or literally just close it down, liquidate it and start something else. And so I basically took that dive and just decided that, you know, seven years of running the shuttle service and stuff and COVID at the time just did not look like it was going away anytime soon. And uh, just took that dive to basically kind of close it down. But the shuttle service was definitely like a huge ordeal for me, but it was kind of a weird spot in my life. And I decided just to kind of go full force with the fingerboarding thing. And I also, at the same time, and I currently do, I have a Comic-Con that I own as well. It kind of fell into my lap. So I have a Branson Comic-Con, we're on our third year, coming up this March in 2023. And so we're running events and stuff like that, dealing with VIPs, special guests, travel, logistics, all that cool stuff that's well within my wheelhouse. And so for most people, they're like, why would you try to host these events and none of them are in your backyard? Like last year was season one and the closest event to me was eight hours away in another state, which is unheard of. No, of course, but it sounds like uh, being a showrunner and putting on these these shows, there's, you're no stranger to that. Correct. It's something that I love and I truly enjoy. You get back into fingerboarding after nine years, get on Instagram like a lot of us do, and boom, see what it's actually turned into from years ago. What's the first fingerboard you buy? The first fingerboard that I bought was actually given to me off of a obstacle I bought. I can't even remember what the obstacle was, but it's a mild board, M-I-L-D, which he's still out and about doing things, but that was my first professional pro board. And so the difference, obviously, night and day from a Tech Deck plastic is just absolutely crazy. And I mean, no disrespect to Tech Deck, I was using them for literally 15 years. But uh, from there, like, it just kind of got crazy. And so I was kind of looking to see who else was fingerboarding out, like, just anywhere close to me, and I couldn't find anyone. And so there was a Outcast event out in Indianapolis, which was my first fingerboarding event. There was also one on the same day in Milwaukee as well. There was called Midwest Sesh 1 at the time. It was the first ones. And so I literally drove like 11 hours to Milwaukee to this one event and then drove back three hours to catch the tail end of the Outcast event all in the same day because it was literally the only two events that I could find that had fingerboarders. And I walked away from both those events so hyped, never fingerboarding with another person. Been doing it since 96 off and on. And uh, the experience for me was just unreal. Like I just had to get more of it. That's awesome. So you need to get more of it. Two and a half years ago is not a long time ago for the progression and involvement that USA FBL has undergone. At what point, at what year, what month do you say, okay, I really want to try and do something legitimate with this and 
come up with the idea of the USAFBL? So it was literally on the drive home the next day from that Indianapolis event. So it's an eight hour drive from Minneapolis back home. So, so I was driving by myself, it's COVID, there's nothing going on. So it was just a lot of time to yourself to kind of think. And like, I mean, no disrespect to the guys that were hosting meetups and events and stuff like that, but like me having like that whole, like being able to run full scale events underneath my like belt and stuff, I was like, man, like it'd be cool if someone was actually running like crazy indoor like events, lots of parks, like, DJ, music, food, like the whole shebangabang. And like, I was kind of looking and stuff on the Instagram and I just literally couldn't find anything. And so like at that time, it was in my like wheelhouse. I basically start trying to like plan to start my own events. And so no one has done those kind of events on that kind of a scale. So I did a four city tour last year just to kind of get my feet wet with it to see if anybody would even show up. Cause like right now I just see Instagram and I went to a couple of events like in the Milwaukee one and the Indianapolis one. And so like I had kind of a, like a feeling for it, but I didn't have a proof of concept for it. I still remember when you showed up to the first event that we had out here in Las Vegas. I mean, it was really your research and design. At what point were you like, okay, let me just start going to all of these events and checking this stuff out and doing your research and all that. Yeah, it was just literally a matter of just doing market research. So I saw on Instagram, you guys were doing a Sin City sesh. For me, it's like, you know, it's a no, like, you don't got to tell me twice to try to make a trip out to Vegas. So <laughs> I caught a very cheap Allegiant Air flight out to Los Angeles, took my girl with me as well. And COVID rates, you know, everything was super cheap. So like hotels, airlines, everything was dirt cheap. So I think we did that whole weekend. I think it was like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It only cost us like four or 500 bucks. That's like wow. food, flight. Yeah, it was wow. stupid cheap. And so for me, it was a no brainer. And of course, you know, it's fingerboarding and check out new parks and new people and stuff like that. And so I had the ability to come out there and meet you guys and uh, see like what Las Vegas is about. And like that event was lit. I mean, I had a lot <laughs> of fun. Thank you. And so I had so much fun. I'm like, dude, I got to make Las Vegas like a stop. Like, I don't care how far it is. I don't care if it's two day drive, like we're going out there. We appreciate that very much. It was incredible meeting you. And then finally, you know, when that event ended, Bert and I were talking and we were like, man, I think maybe you had one post on Instagram, maybe a hundred followers. We were both like, you are going to do big things. So like I had all this like big ideas and like great intentions and like, so I'm hitting everybody up. I'm super excited. And like, you know, I've got like 40 people following me and I got like one post. I haven't hosted a single fingerboarding event and like there, everybody's like, you know, who's this guy coming out of yeah. left field, you know? And like looking back at it and I'm like, yeah, I completely understand all the skepticism, especially on like a scale that we're doing. Like if I was just doing a small meetup, whatever people would be like, oh, okay, cool. But you know, it's hard to take someone seriously with no track record in the industry and stuff. And so I got a little bit of resistance, but I got some people that are like, you know, they're willing to take a chance and see where it goes. Of course. I mean, I'm so glad it worked out because we were both like, oh, we really don't know what was happening here. And granted, it was the first time that we were throwing an event as well. Reason being is, you know, I've been fingerboarding since 2010, never been to an event. I got tired of waiting for somebody to do it. So we decided to do it. And uh, while we were trying to figure it out, you came into the mix and it was, it's just seeing the growth is incredible. All right. You have the biggest fingerboard park collection in the United States. 
I officially do now. I didn't think that I had one until I went out and kind of saw Mike Storsash, and he's got a lot. And then there is a guy named Markov who's out of Minneapolis area, and he's got about 30 parks as well. He used to run the IFC. Okay. And he's actually opening up a museum. It's like the largest fingerboard. He has the largest fingerboarding collection in the world. Have you seen it? I personally went out there and saw it. And while I was out there, I was putting Minneapolis on the map. That's fantastic. But these parks, you've acquired them from all over the world. And as somebody that's thrown events on as well and watching you set them up a little bit, getting to your event early and watching you tear them down, because I remember last year's event here in Vegas, it was just go, 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 go. Because logistically, the amount of time that you have to travel in between cities and set up and tear down, it is a lot of work. Part of me wants to say what's wrong with you. But the other part of me is, what do the people not see that goes into setting up one of your events? So the thing that people do not see is it takes an extremely large amount of man hours. So we've got a very small crew of four or five people, and we have four hours to literally unload everything out of this huge trailer, set everything up, registration, banners, DJ equipment, lighting. I mean, everything has to be ready to go in four hours because, like, you know, fingerboarding is not a very got a lot of money like running through it and stuff so like i can't rent a venue out for two or three days like i have hours so like i'll rent it out for just like 12 hours and so we have like 12 hours to literally go in load in host the event and then literally load out and so when we're going out west which i'm tired just thinking about it we <laughs> literally go to denver and then we're done at denver we hit the road it's 11 hours to phoenix and then we will literally load in, do the event, load out, and then we will drive five hours that same day to Vegas. And then we'll literally next day, load in, do the event, load out. And then we have like half a day breather to kind of mess around in Vegas. And then we got to shoot straight over to Los Angeles. And then of course you have to make the drive back home. Correct. And so we have a three day truck and trailer ride going back home from G8 Sessions and Playhouse Fingerboard Shop. And those are also back-to-back -back as well. So we'll host an event at G8 Sessions in Tustin, California. And then that same day, we're going straight over to Playhouse Fingerboard Workshop and setting up for the next day. You did a very similar leg last year in the amount that you did. What was that drive home like at the end of it? The drive home is boring. I'm not going to lie. There's no trees. There's like, it's just straight desert <laughs> for like a full day. So not until you get into like Kansas, it gets a little interesting. So it was pretty boring, but it was relieving knowing that like we left Vegas and we literally killed it. Man, it was incredible. When we host events out here and we just had the third Sin City session, I moved into a house that's big enough and has a, a backyard that is a pretty much an event space. And I was lucky enough to have it in my own home. But even when we did venues, it would be at the end of it, finally, when the lights go off and being able to sit down that day and just breathe. I cannot comprehend what that feeling must be like for you when the actual tour was just over. Or did you just go right back into planning the next year and now the next year? Yeah, we went right back into planning the next year. The weird thing for me after the tour was 
Halfway through, we got our huge shipment of Black River Parks. We were hoping to get it a little bit before the tour, but we ordered them kind of last minute and everything had to be handmade. And so by the time we got it, we we're halfway through the tour. And so I kind of messed up as far as the measurements. Like logically, I knew that like, you know, Europe is on a metric system and we're on a standard. And so, but somehow I still thought these parks were like eight feet long and they came in at eight and a half. They're like eight point, they're eight feet, eight inches long like the big ones, like the G15, G13, they're eight feet, eight inches long. I have a 16 foot trailer that we literally packed to the brim. And so you can't put two of them side by side on the same shelf. Oh, geez. It was uh, some serious logistical stuff that goes just packing the trailer and making sure that we can get it literally from place to place to place. It's a piece of art. I hate having to move parks just across a city because, you know, stuff happens, dings, dens, scratches, rails get bent and broken off and everything else. What's your secret to dealing with that? Or do you just accept it as it's wear and tear, it's part of the game, it's going to happen? Well, that's the main reason why we didn't fulfill the last two stops is because of the fact that, like, we were beating the parks up and the way that we were transporting them is fine for the short term, but it is not good for the long term. So we ended up reconstructing the trailer, custom shelving, better footings. We got, like, just better braces and stuff for all the parks. And we're only bringing certain parks because not all parks are really meant, none of the parks are literally meant to travel. They're meant to basically stay stay in one place and one place only, maybe move once or twice in its lifetime, but definitely not, you know, coast to coast. Gosh, this storefront that you have, which looks amazing, I have not been able to make it out there yet, but I am hoping to here soon. This storefront that you have, I would think that a fingerboard shop by itself, it's not sustainable. There really isn't many. They're either attached to skate shops or attached to some other kind of business or gimmick or shop overall so what is it about the storefront that you have that you've gone and decided to do what we all dream of doing so and you would be correct it is not sustainable at all i'm a day trader which is a terrible time to be day trading right now but uh that's where the majority of my income basically comes from so it basically kind of i use the shop to theoretically kind of offset expenses and stuff like that for tax purposes. Uh, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be saying that on the air, but we'll, we'll roll with it. No, no, it's okay. But, uh, as an accountant and stuff, I've got that all like, you know, within my wheelhouse and stuff, but that's basically how the shop is basically running. It isn't sustainable. There isn't like a business model. No one's doing it by itself. I'm theoretically the first one to kind of take that dive and that risk. And so that's why we really, really need people to definitely like support us buy tickets, buy merch. We have a Patreon account and stuff as well. If you guys want to help donate to the cause, donate to the tour, stuff like that. And so, I mean, I'm going to do it until I literally go bankrupt trying to do it. This is what I love. I'm just, it's putting fingerboarding and hosting events, my two like literal favorite passions and I put them together. And so I'm theoretically living the dream. I'm living a lot of people's dreams. And that's so, incredible. And, and that's the thing. It's because uh, you're not doing it for the money and fingerboarding the way it is right now, it's just not there. No, and I agree. I want it to be there and I'm trying to get it there just so that, you know, I can try to clear a path for other people to come up and kind of do things and stuff as well. But I mean, we have to kind of come together as a community. We got to kind of support one another. Gosh, 2021 tour. I was at the Vegas one, obviously. It was absolutely fantastic. 
you're right around the corner from the 2022 tour here. I mean, I'm going to see you here in what? I would say two, three weeks. That's going to be awesome. What's going to be different about this year's tour or what did you learn last year that you're definitely implementing? So last year was more of a proof of concept. I had to basically prove that, A, people are even going to come out to these events. Like that was something I you know, no one even knows. I can throw this uh, tour in a hundred different cities, but I mean, like, no one really knows, like, who's going to show up. I still don't really know, like, a lot of the cities that I'm doing, like Atlanta, Minneapolis, those are, like, two cities that I'm a little on the leery side. I know there's communities, and so I'm hoping that, you know, people show up and definitely support the tour and, you know, so I can continue doing what we do, but... It is uh, definitely, you have to prove that one, like people are going to come out. And then two, we have an ungodly amount of cost just from, I don't know if you've seen the gas prices, but the truck and trailer, I mean, I'm getting like seven miles to the gallon driving all the way to Los Angeles. Mm. And Mm. so people don't realize like, yeah, $30 ticket is very, very expensive. But I mean, like the cost, just hotel stays, gas, food, that stuff, the cost of the venue, stuff like that, it is astronomically expensive. Not at all. And it's, uh, you had a very nice venue last year and you're going to be in the same venue this year here in Vegas. And I remember because we had sponsored and, you know, I was going to pay and you were like, you don't have to pay. And I was like, dude. I'm not blind to the fact of what this is actually costing. I do not mind paying whatsoever. And I've talked to people about that that say, you know, $30 is kind of steep. And, you know, we charge $15 for our event. And I'm like, listen, I'm walking into my backyard. This dude's going across the country with double the parks and all this, that, and the other. And I'm like, you are getting a steal for being to play on these all day for 30 bucks. Yeah, the cost and stuff is really, really expensive. And so it's one of those things like I always try to make sure that I under promise and over deliver. And so last year, like no one knew like the full extent of inventory of parks that we were bringing. And so for most people, unless you went to Voss, like no one has ever stood in a room with 20, 30, 40 parks. No, of course not. And so it's like overwhelming for so many people and seeing those faces for the first time, like they just walk in and they're just like, this is nuts. Like this will literally take me all day to skate. I don't think I even hit all the ones last year. I remember because fingerboarders like to congregate and go and skate the same parks other fingerboarders were skating on. And I stood back at last year's event and I looked and I was like, there is literally enough parks for one person to fingerboard at a time and then still have room. And that was the gameplay. And one of the big things that I absolutely despise, and I won't name names and stuff like that, just because like, you know, I love and support people that are doing this, but it's one of those things like if I go to an event and I have to wait for a table to open up or a spot to open up to fingerboard, like it's pretty frustrating. And so I always made it a point to where like I would bring more parks, hopefully, than there are people that are attending. And so, like, you know, you don't have to wait for spots to open up. You don't have to wait for a particular park to kind of open up. Like, there's just so much stuff there that, like, everybody can kind of get their fill without any real, like, you know, hesitations or restrictions. Is there any park in particular that you like the most? I mean, you know, showing up and you, you know, have Dark Matter and uh, Black River and do you have a Woodhouse Park? I do not. Okay. Well, there's one you should add to your collection. But you have almost everybody. I mean, warehouse ramps, there's so many more to name. Is there any park in particular that you like the most? 
I got asked that question a couple of weeks ago and someone came into my store and was like, what's your favorite park? And like, I didn't have an answer. I'm like, if my store was on fire, I literally wouldn't know which park to like literally <laughs> try to save. Jeez. That's kind of like crazy. I mean, maybe the G8, that's my, probably my go-to park, but I mean, I love them all just the same. I mean, every single park is handmade with love. There's a lot of care, a lot of attention to detail, and there's a lot of work and time that goes behind like all these parks. And one of the things that like, you know, if you ever come out to the shop and you'll like stand in like two rooms full of parks is that, you know, there's literally tens of thousands of man hours put into all those parks. The cost reflects that too, because the average person doesn't have access to a fingerboard park. But I'll tell you for myself, you know, I have at the moment here at the house about 15 parks in my collection. And I often find myself fingerboarding the most on my desk with a stapler. <laughs> I don't know what that says, but it's they're nice to have, but definitely not usually the most, I don't know. It's, it's like when you have them, I, I don't know if it's the same for you. Do you often use them or do you find yourself fingerboarding on just a small obstacle or on your desk or this kind of stuff? I pretty much, I'm kind of spoiled now, like, and I've gotten to be accustomed to the fact that I'm pretty much spoiled having this much stuff at my disposal, but I pretty much only skate on parks now. I used to skate on some obstacles. I've been doing obstacles literally my entire life up until like, you know, year, year and a half. But once you go to parks for me, like it's hard to go back to an obstacle. So like I used to have a massive Black River obstacle collection and I ended up literally just kind of piecing everything out just because of the fact that like you have parks now. So like an obstacle for me is kind of like, you know, obsolete at that point. I'll still keep like, you know, a square rail here or there, something like that, maybe a ledge. But outside of that, like, I mean, it's all parks for me. Awesome. How often do you fingerboard? I fingerboard about 20 hours a week. You got it down to the, the actual time? Wow. Well, I mean, I'm seven days a week at the shop, mainly because of the tour and stuff. And so I average about two, two and a half hours. I usually work about eight or nine hours a day. So it's, uh, I kind of threw it together. It's like, I wonder how much time I spend. And I'm like, yeah, roughly about 20 hours a week. As a show runner, an event runner, a tour runner, it's something that a lot of people don't like to talk about, but it's often happened. I know it happens in SoCal a lot. In some parts of Vegas, it's happened. But it just it comes with the territory of running such huge operations. Have you ever had to deal, and I say this specifically because I remember with uh, parks being pieced out and you know made of obstacles, have you ever had to deal with any pilferage or anything like that at any of the events? And I'm asking this in terms of you know me running my own events as well. I personally have not had any of like nothing like that happen on tour or at my shop, which is, I mean, knock on wood, like I actually kind of fear that at my shop because I leave BRTs and dynamics and stuff freely hanging on the wall. Everybody's like, you need to put it behind a display case. And so for me, like if I have to literally lock up all my stuff so that you can't really touch, feel it, see it, all that stuff, like for me, it's not even worth it. Like it just ruins it for me. For me, that's what I want to continue to have. I mean, hopefully people will, you know, respect, you know, people's property and stuff like that, where I can continue to freely, you know, hang products and stuff on the wall. And so like you come to the store, I mean, you can literally grab a handful of like wheels and literally walk out with three, $400 worth of products. This stuff's expensive. And so luckily for me, I haven't had any like actual theft and stuff like that. So I'm very grateful for that. I can't say that for, you know, everybody else, but for no. me at least, like I'm grateful enough to not have to deal with that so far. 
that's mind-boggling to me. Not, not, not that it hasn't happened, but the thought of walking into this beautiful storefront and being able to just pick the pair of trucks or the set of wheels that I want. It's literally like going into Walmart. We have hundreds of obstacles. We have over 30 vendors that sell products and stuff within our store. Everything from Black River, Dynamic, Elasticos, Ill Pills. Just, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. Are these people that you've reached out to or that have reached out to you or, or a little bit of both? I personally try to make a custom to try and to reach out to everyone and kind of establish relationships. Mainly I do that through sponsoring events. So like I basically sponsor every single event that I see. Yes, you do. And you did ours. Thank you very much. Yeah, no worries. I appreciate it. And so I do it mainly for two reasons. One, I like to see fingerboarding grow. Like, I mean, if people aren't sponsoring events, they're not doing stuff, then like I can't do what I do. So like I have to basically help people help me. And then two, it allows me to open up that relationship to other vendors and other companies and stuff like that. And so it gets that conversation going because it's kind of hard to start conversations with people out of the blue. And especially for me, like last year, because I didn't have a following. So like when I'm starting conversations with like, you know, 200 followers, it's like, okay, who's this guy? And you had the best intentions too. You were like, hey, this is my name. This is what I'm about. Here's a mission statement. Here are the goals. Let me know what you need or what I can do to help you. You Nobody ever comes out of the blue and offers that kind of support. Yeah, and I, I agree. I figured I had to kind of do something that kind of stands out and goes a little bit above and beyond. I mean, my intentions are still great with it, but I mean, like no one really does that, especially kind of, you know, in our industry, it's one of those like, we don't talk to you unless you talk to us. And like, we got to get rid of that stigma, you know? Very or, clickish and I agree with yeah, you Yeah, yeah. And so it's easy to open up those doors when you're giving something first. That is a good mindset. This may be a loaded question, but what is the goal with the USAFBL? I mean, we talked a little bit about it when you were at our first Sin City session. I don't know if it's changed, but what is the goal? What are you trying to establish calling it the fingerboarding league? So that's actually a really good question. And no one honestly has actually asked me that. I have massive goals. Like if you think the tour is big, like that's like Girl Scout cookie stuff. Like. <laughs> The goal for the league is to pretty much kind of duplicate what like SLS is basically doing, what Battle of the Barracks and stuff is basically doing. So like our Battle of the Plies is getting ready to become the next fingerboarding version of Battle of the Barracks. When we go on tour, we're looking at trying to basically duplicate like what SLS is doing as well. And so we're trying to take it a little bit more mainstream and I'm probably gonna get a lot of slack for this because I know fingerboarding is more of an art form, it's more of a culture and some people aren't about, you know, corporatizing it. The thing is, in order for the industry to grow, there has to be money running through it. And so if there's no money running through it, that means no one's making boards because no one's buying boards. No one's making wheels because no one's you know doing wheels. No one's hosting events because, you know, no one's going to events. And so in order to grow the industry as a whole, you have to get money running through the industry as a whole. And so for me to be able to like do a tour and getting awareness and basically getting more people back into fingerboarding and making fingerboarding look cool is basically the main goal. So we're basically trying to establish ourselves up as a league. We're looking to become more mainstream, national television mainstream. And then we're also looking at for 2023, you're going to hear this first, but we are looking at doing our first invitational event. Wow. 
and then I don't even know if I'm able to even really say this, but Black River has pre-agreed to send five of their writers to this invitational event whenever I'm wow. able to kind of launch this. And so the tour is a way for me to basically seek out the best fingerboarders in the country and basically hand select people to kind of do battle. I would like to basically see, this is right now, this is just like the pre-planning stages. This is not even like no, anything course. solid, anything like that. But I mean, hosting large scale events like that, where, you know, we're doing, you know, we're getting travel, you know, people are coming out, we're flying them out, Black River's flying people out. I might get people maybe from Colombia, maybe from Asia, maybe from Australia, maybe do like a fingerboarding X Games type deal. Wow, I know you can't see me, but my mind was just blown because it's uh, to be able to go into a physical location. I mean, we've all been connected virtually and through our phones and Instagram, but to be able to do it and really legitimize this is huge. And, you know, if uh, table tennis can become a huge thing and be on national television, why can't fingerboarding as well? Exactly. Like I was watching Cornhole the other day. I mean, I love Cornhole. I'm not, you know, don't disrespect to Cornhole, but I mean, if someone throwing a bag into a hole can get on ESPN too, like I feel like fingerboarding should be like right there. I mean, granted, we have esports now, you know, we have people playing Fortnite, Call of Duty, Warzone, things like that. The sky is the limit, and I definitely believe that that can happen. And I agree. I strongly, strongly agree. That's kind of what we're pushing towards. Like, I would like to basically have kids literally be able to grow up and say, you know what? Like, I want to be a professional fingerboarder. Like, that's my dream path. That's what I want to do. Man, that's awesome. So right now, you can do that in skateboarding. Like, theoretically, if you want to be a professional skateboarder, that is actually a career path, and you can do that. And so why not the same for fingerboarding? I got a huge smile on my face because I think I can see the vision the way you have it too. And, and uh, that's a good note, I think. I think we should end the podcast on. But uh, before we do, two last things. Well, the first one is, what is your favorite piece of fingerboarding gear that you own? My favorite, like an obstacle or like equipment? Or... All of the above. It's the one thing where if, if there was a fire, you are grabbing it. Like you just know in your heart. Yeah, you need it. It is irreplaceable. That's definitely my fingerboard. Um, I run one setup basically at all times. I don't usually have a backup. I have two at the shop for show, but I only skate with one. I've always been that way. I will literally thrash that fingerboard until like it is not recognizable. Basically, I'll run it for eight months to a year and a half, basically. And so once I like form a bond with that fingerboard, I'm kind of like an avatar. If you ever seen that movie, like I just sink in with that fingerboard and it's like part of me. Well, and huh. so like if the store was on fire, I wouldn't even grab a park. I would literally grab my $120, $140 setup and like just walk out the store. That's what insurance is just for, right? Exactly. Man. And lastly, just go ahead and plug it. Where can people find you? Instagram, socials. I mean, you're on absolutely everything give any information you want about the tour and all that good stuff yeah of course so yeah we're on literally every single social media platform everything from twitch twitter youtube tiktok instagram facebook we're actually looking at doing some nfts i don't know if you guys are into that or know anything about that but we have an open sea account we're probably going to start doing nfts here this fall uh, for all your nfts we are uh you can find a lot of the information on our main website at www.usafbl.com. 
Also, if you're interested in going to one of our events, please, please, please buy them online. All of our tickets are on sale online. They're a little bit more expensive at the door. Sponsors, like I did not forget about you. Much love. I can't do any of this stuff without you guys. Levine, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You blew my mind and I definitely learned a lot, man. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me on the show. Of course now, man. You take care. You as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Finger Space Podcast. Thanks for skating by, and don't forget to nosebonk that subscribe button and dark slide on over to our Discord server. This episode was produced by Fingerspace Co. and hosted by Nostalgia FB. Big thanks to all guests and listeners.